Miss children ages four through first grade to follow Pastor Neil and Caitlin and Rosie out this north door. See you later, Oliver. He's my poster child to pick on. (laughs) So, a marriage counselor had a tough nut to crack before him. A couple that had been married for 20 years. There was no infidelity. There was no abuse. There were no angry words. They just kind of had lost the spark. Life had just kind of gotten in the way. And this marriage counselor was particularly challenged by the husband. Because the husband, well, he just thought it was sufficient that, you know, he earned the money, paid the bills, he took care of things around the household, took care of the car, and he kind of thought that that was enough to kind of keep the marriage going. Unfortunately, things were drying up. And the marriage counselor was getting more and more concerned and even frustrated. He felt like he he needed to do something a little drastic, kind of shake things up, to wake him up. So he came around from his desk and came up to the wife, grabbed her hands, brought her to his feet, to her feet, and then... He embraced the woman and kissed her passionately for at least ten seconds. And sat her back down, then looked at the husband and said, This is what your wife needs at least four times a week. Sorry, Ben. I don't mean to make you the... (laughs) And the husband looked a tad perplexed, like, what just happened? What, what do I do? And he finally answered, Okay, Doc. But Wednesdays is my bowling night, so I'll have to bring her by, by about 4.30. Someone didn't get it, did they? Jesus the great bridegroom is trying to break through to his people, his bride. He's trying to get our attention. Because he wants to come back and find a faithful bride who is in love with him. But there's some things that are happening with his bride that need to be addressed. And so he seeks to address them. He's written a letter to them. In fact, he's written seven letters. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack it open to Revelation chapter 2. To his people, to the individual churches there. And they are written to individual churches in time, 
in history with particular things going on. But these letters are also there for us, the church today. It's a letter to us, for us to pay attention to where our relationship is with our bridegroom. And perhaps we might find ourselves as clueless as the husband in my story. By the way, that's fictional, and the, and the, the counselor wasn't me. So I just want to let you know that. Only one woman I kiss like that. So just want to let you know. But before we dig into God's Word, let me pray for us. So Lord, we're grateful for your Word. It's here for our health between you, Lord Jesus, our great bridegroom, and, and us, your people, your bride. So I pray that you will open the eyes of our hearts, give us ears to hear what you want to tell us, and help us to respond to you, Lord, in spirit and in truth and in love. We're grateful for what you've done, Jesus, in coming for us. Help us to respond. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So let's read the first seven verses of chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider, or remember, how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. I hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So before we dive into this letter to the church at Ephesus, let's talk about just a few background things. First of all, the author of this is the Lord Jesus, but he's using the apostle John, the son of Zebedee, whose brother is James, the, th- the sons of thunder, if you know anything about that. You follow Jesus, in fact, in the gospel of John, he's called the the disciple that Jesus loves. And he's the one whom Jesus said to to John, you know, woman, behold your son, talking about his mother, and, you know, behold your mother, and and, and entrusted Mary uh, into his care. But now this is later on in his life, and he is at an island called Patmos, which is a small island just off the coast of, of Ephesus, and you can barely see it. This is so blurry, and I don't. That's just what happens when you try and blow something up. You find on the internet, 
But it's one of those little islands there, just off the coast of Ephesus. And uh, he was in exile. Yet he was commanded in chapter 1 by Jesus himself to write to the seven churches of Asia. And you can see there's kind of a, uh, those red dots are the different churches. Jesus would say, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, not all of those churches were necessarily the most prominent churches in this region, which is called Asia or Asia Minor. The word Asia means east. Means east. And so this is an area where that was really the eastern end of the Roman Empire, the kind of the gateway to the, the Roman Empire for the east. And so the reason that these churches were, were chosen is there is a route running through these different churches, a connection, a trade route, where the word, these letters, could get out to that whole region, this Asia Minor region, and permeate it. But each, each letter is written to the individual churches, what's going on in their individual churches, but they're also made known to all the churches. All the churches are going to read each other's letters and say, oh, is that applying to me? Is that what's going on with me? And those letters are written to us. And we need to ask the question, is that what's going on with me? Is that what's going on in our church? So, Jesus, again, is writing his church, his churches, if you will. A few things about Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city. In fact, this is kind of the gateway. It's, it's situated on the coast. You kind of make your way into this place, and it is a huge, huge metropolis of this time of that era. They, and they're a host of a temple to a goddess called Artemis, or Diana. It is the largest building in the Roman Empire at the time. Huge marble uh, pillars there and and this is i mean it's kind of like associating uh you know san francisco with the golden gate bridge or uh statue of liberty with new york city this temple to artemis is the icon of that city it's what the people identify with and that becomes a problem too um the gospel comes to the city of ephesus in about 52 A.D., and you can read about that in Acts chapter 18, when Aquila and Priscilla are left there by the Apostle Paul. And then he comes back, and you can read that about that in, in Acts chapter 19. And he spends about two years there, and some amazing things go on. I mean, this is an area where there's a lot of spiritual, pagan, even occult activity going on. And because of that, you know, the Spirit of God kind of combats that. In fact, we read of, of Paul doing some miraculous things, even like touching handkerchiefs and those being taken out to heal people or aprons. So it's, it's, it's a pretty thing, it's a pretty uh, hostile area where, you know, the gospel through Jesus Christ is trying to, to claim authority over an area that has been really a, kind of the, a bastion of the devil, if you will, for a, a season. Uh, we meet the seven sons of Sceva, who try and appropriate Jesus' name for uh, casting out demons, only to have that backfire on them. 
we see that the people of God coming out of their pagan background, they bring out all these magic books, and they burn them, and they're worth about 57,000 pieces of silver. And again, the Temple of Artemis is pretty, pretty prominent in this, this town, as well as emperor worship. But oftentimes we associate Ephesus, again, with Paul and his influence because of the you know, letter to the Ephesians, the book of Acts, uh, you know, his letters to uh, Timothy. But now John. John comes into the picture after, after uh, Paul has been executed, about 65 A.D. And he comes and really ministers to the Ephesian church at the time. And then he is sent into exile, we think the you know early 90s of, of the first century, exiled to Patmos, and then he comes back in about uh, 96 AD, and, and he actually, at least church tradition has it, that he dies there, and his grave was actually there. Here's my point in bringing out all this history, okay? John knows the Ephesians. John knows Asia Minor. He's not just, you know, speaking into a vacuum. And Jesus wants to speak to those churches through him. So, let's look again at verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. The first thing that we notice here is that Jesus is Lord of his church. He is in charge of it. And it talks about him the imagery of him holding the seven stars in his hand. That means they're under his control. He is the one upholding it. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, and by the way, I, I recommend that you actually go back to chapter 1 and read it. I'm not going to read it here, but it kind of sets the stage for all these letters. But in verse 20 of chapter 1, we find out that the stars are the angels of the churches. Now, what does that mean? The word angel means a messenger, or an angelic protector, or it could be a bishop, or a pastor. So that angel, that messenger, could be of human origin as well. How do, we, how do we understand this? Because it is, it is symbolic language. Here's, here's my best understanding from studying this. Okay, I believe it is an angelic personification of the spirit or the flavor of that church. It's ethos, if you will, that appears before the heavenlies. It's what that church appears to look like before Jesus in the heavenlies. In a sense, it's not talking to a leader per se, it's talking to directly to the church. If we were to apply it to Berean, Berean has a kind of particular flavor. We're people that are about God's word, right? So that's a flavor. We tend to be people that want to look in there. We want to make the gospel known. We want to serve him with a whole heart. So that's, that's a flavor too. A lot of us are coming from an American 
middle to upper middle class backgrounds. That's a flavor too. We can't, that's just who we are. But there's a flavor that stands before Jesus. And that's what Jesus is addressing. And he is upholding us, and he is under control. This is Jesus' church. It's not Pastor Nathan's church. It's his church. Number two, he says, he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the lampstands, again, symbolized in chapter uh, 1, verse 20, the churches themselves. And we know that this building is not the Brean Community Church. It's its people. It's its people. And what Jesus is saying is that He is present in His people. He walks among us. He knows what's going on. He sees us. He sees us individually. He sees us as a group. He knows what is going on. So there's no hiding, no trying to pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. He's there. He's intimately equated with us. The good, the bad, the ugly. He sees us. He knows us. And that should give us great confidence, again, that He's upholding us, but also great, you know, sobriety that, hey, He knows everything. There's no pulling the wool over Jesus' eyes. And he says, verse 2, I know your deeds. I walk among you and I know your deeds. (laughs) That could be good, that could be bad, depending on how you're behaving. Of the Ephesians church, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. And have found them to be false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And so Jesus commends good and faithful behavior in his church. He commends it. These are words that I would like to have said of me, these are words that I think I'd like to have said of, of the Breeding Community Church. They're hardworking. The word there in the Greek really is more toil. It's, it, it speaks to pain and strain for the cause of Christ. These people are not kicking back to say, oh, I'm just going to wait till Jesus comes. No, they're about the business of the kingdom of God. They're making the gospel known. If you look in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, as Paul spends two years in Ephesus, you know, he's, he's preaching the gospel, but you know what happens? The gospel is spreading up and down that, those seven churches into the whole region of Asia Minor. It's like, you know, the gospel is spreading here out of Rochester into the whole state of Minnesota. That's what it's like. And it's because of what God is doing in the Ephesian church. They really are a beachhead church of the gospel. This is where the gospel really starts to take root in that whole region of Asia Minor. So they're hardworking. Number two, they are biblical. They're about true doctrine. You cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and have found them to be false. 
As I pointed out earlier, Asia Minor is a hotbed of spiritual activity. Again, most of it's pagan, most of it occultic. But as this new, this new way has come, some are excited about this, and some are looking to exploit this, to take advantage, take control of this young church to see if they can kind of gain some influence, maybe gain financially from it even. Paul actually warned the Ephesians about this. In chapter 20, verse 29, as as he left and was returning to Jerusalem, he says, be careful. There are going to come wolves out from in your midst. And so the church elders took this very seriously. And so they were able to test people. What do you believe about Jesus? Is he the way? Is he the truth? Is he the life? Are you basing your salvation on him and him alone? Or something else, something extra from the gospel, or something different from the scriptures. And they were able to weed out bad actors. Because all were welcome into the church of Ephesus. But not all were allowed to lead. Because you had to be faithful to the gospel. You had to be faithful to Jesus. You had to be faithful to his word. And even so, only those who Jesus called to be leaders were to take that mantle. Not just anyone. So they were faithful in being biblical and true to their doctrine. Number three. Okay. They were faithful in their perseverance and endurance and persecution in Jesus' name. Again, remember, the gospel coming to Ephesus. It, was not good, it wasn't good news to everybody. You know why? Because we got a little side business going on here, making little mini Artemises. And you're saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all? Hey, that's going to cut into my bottom line. That's not Okay at least for the silversmith, Demetrius, which caused a riot. Not everyone was excited about the gospel. Think about this. It would be like someone coming to New York City and saying, hey, the Statue of Liberty is a pagan idol. We need to get rid of it. That would not be very welcome by the people in the little gift shops that are selling these little mini, you know, Statue of Liberty things. The gospel also claims to be the only way to salvation, for people to have a right relationship with God, right? The words of Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That doesn't seem very tolerant. seems rather judgmental, in fact. But again, we have to realize that it's not us saying it, it's Jesus saying it. Jesus, who is the Son of God, the unique Son of God, God's provision for us to be reconciled to Him. But it's not always welcome in a pluralistic society. And so there's a temptation to say, oh, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. You know, we don't do that with medicine. 
But we do that with belief, don't we? It's not always welcome. Temper the message. Make it palatable. That's what people wanted the Ephesians to do, but they didn't. They held on to Jesus, and they didn't give up, and they didn't give in. They took the weird seriously that Jesus would say in Matthew 10, verses 32 through 33. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. They were not going to back off on who Jesus was. They were going to own him publicly, no matter what it cost. So, in Jesus' eyes, the church of Ephesus has a lot going for it. A lot of good things. A lot of good things that you and I would like to be said about us. But they had, something had slipped. And this is where Jesus wants to address this. In verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Or you have forsaken your first love. Jesus rebukes the good behavior with an absent heart. Jesus rebukes good behavior with an absent heart. I found this comment in uh, one of my, my commentaries by a professor named Robert Mounts. He says, Virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. You see, when we come to Jesus, and he starts to make some radical changes, and maybe how we were living previous to that, And especially if you're going through a prolonged season of endurance, trying to maintain your you know, fidelity towards him, you can fall into the trap of equating the changes in your life of behavior to the actual relationship with Jesus himself. Do you hear what I'm saying? Maybe, maybe in a, a crass expression it would be, I'm a Christian because I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do. My relationship is equated with my obedience or what I do or don't do. Instead of placing my faith in Jesus and changing because of my relationship to Him, it's just, just the things that I do. You know, some of us have had radical transformations. Some of us had just had gradual transformations. But there is a transformation that takes place. But over time, we can lose perspective. We can lose perspective. Because we've lost track of our relationship with Jesus. And it can happen gradually, and it happens subtly, and it can happen to sincere Christians. But again, my relationship with God is, or with Christ, is just what I do or I don't do. And here's where it goes south. Is it can start to become a sense of pride. I kind of like that I've gotten good at being good. I kind of like that, you know, I can, I don't do that anymore. And I can say I don't do this or I do that or I do this. 
And also, you know, the church gives you a lot of attaboys for that, right? Man, so good to see how your life has changed. And that's good. But it still has to be about Jesus. Not a sense of self-pride. Because you know what happens then? Then we deteriorate into what I just call Christian Pharisees. And you know what the downfall of the Pharisees was? was They were working really hard to be good in order to earn God's righteousness, right? That's not the Gospel. That is not the Gospel. The Gospel says, you are spiritually bankrupt. you got nothing. And Jesus comes and meets that need. And then He changes you. But it's not because of you. It's because of Him. It changes you. And inwardly, our lips may say, I need Jesus. But inwardly we're thinking, but not as much as I used to. I'm going to tell you folks, if you're really pursuing Jesus and His holiness, you start to sense, I need Jesus more than I ever thought I did. I need Jesus more than I ever thought I did. I knew I needed Him here, but now I know even more. Because now I see Him more clearly in His holiness and who He is. And praise God! Because God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's amazing. But let's not fall in that trap. of getting good at being good and losing our first love. Now, I want to tell you some commentators, and you may read this if you're pursuing this, what does it mean to lose your first love? Some were saying, you know, the, the Ephesians were so zealous to kind of ferret out false believers and false, you know, uh, doctrine that they kind of became critical of each other to the point where you know, they just held each other in suspicion. And so a sense of grace and love kind of deteriorated. You know, the Apostle John deals with this in his, his first epistles where he talks about, you know, a, a person can't say, I love God, and yet hate his brother. Those, those two things are not compatible. And that's true. But I think Jesus would have been more clear in this letter if that were how he was, what he was drilling into. I think, again, it's really having the right behaviors with an absent heart that Jesus is, is drilling into. This can happen in marriage. You can get married, be building a family, have kids, doing all those things to build a life together, and suddenly you stop losing track of each other. You stop pursuing each other. It's just about getting the kids to the ball game. It's what are we going to do for the vacation. And how, you know, I'm going to pick up the milk from the, from the grocery store. And it's all just the stuff. And you think, oh, well, what a, what a wonderful life we have here. But somehow you've lost track of each other. That's what Jesus is addressing here. 
All the right behavior with an absent heart. Lost connection with Him. Remember, Jesus is our bridegroom, and we are His bride. And so He says, consider or remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So what Jesus says is, remember. Remember what it was like when you first fell in love with me. When you first felt, came to faith in me. And the freedom you started to feel and the, and the discoveries you were making. And how you wanted to spend time with me. How you wanted to be with me. And know Him. And then repent. Turn away from the direction you're heading right now. And, and even within that, confess it. Say, Lord Jesus, I am so sorry. I, I am so sorry. This is, again, this has become about my behavior and kudos to myself rather than me pursuing you. Lord, change me. I, I, want, I still want to do what pleases you, but I want to do it for the right reasons. Not about me. I want it to be about you. And then redo. Redo. Redo what you first did to pursue Him, to know Him. And so maybe it's just a refocus of what you're doing. When you're in your, your time of, of Scripture, looking at God's Word, His love letter to you, if you will. Make it about being a love letter to you. Rather than gaining knowledge, rather than even preparing for a Bible study or a, you know, some sort of devotional you're, gonna, you're going to prepare. And I tell you, that's, that's the precipice that I, work, I walk every week, right? I have to be prepared to disseminate God's Word faithfully, but... The first thing I'm trying to say, Lord Jesus, don't let me miss you in the midst of this. Don't let me miss what you have to say to me. And I'll tell you what, this, this word rebukes me today. Am I missing you, Lord Jesus, in all my intake? Does it become about knowledge? Does it become about presentation? Or is it about knowing you and loving you? Lord, what do you want to say to me? And in your prayer time, not about getting what you want, not about turning God's hand, but in seeking His face, to know Him. To say, Lord Jesus, I, I, I want you to be my first love. What do you want to say to me even in this time? And in your time, are you taking time just to even get alone with Him and Sometimes just be alone with Him and it doesn't have to be in front of a Bible or in prayer. Maybe it's just out being in God's creation. Which according to Psalm 19 declares His glory. Declares who He is. Or even in music. That's the beautiful thing about music. It opens up your heart to areas that maybe just the written word doesn't get in. And maybe it's an old song that takes you back to 
what God has done in your life. Or maybe it's a new song that helps you see Him in a whole new way. But redo. Pursue Him. Jesus is God. He's the second person in the Godhead. And we know what the great commandment is. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart. That is all your emotions, your passion, your affection. If you're a Packer fan in the crowd today, and I don't, I'm not meaning to throw dirt in anyone's wound here, okay? But how, di- how disappointed are you that they lost last night? How disappointed are you in your heart being distracted from Jesus? Do you have the same passion for that? All of your soul, that is your very self. Your identity. Is your identity ultimately in Christ? Or is it something else? Your work. Your nationality. As an American. Is it in who you're married to? Is it ultimately in Christ? Your very self. Are you loving Jesus with yourself? Do you say, I am in Christ. I am a new creation. And that has made all the difference right now and for eternity. To love Him with your mind and and all that you think about. What do you spend your time thinking about? I'll tell you what, folks. I'm convicted in that area because my mind has been distracted all week long. Am I thinking about who He is? Am I loving Him with my mind? And your strength. Your very energy. What do you spend your time putting your time into? And folks, that's a high bar. And none of us is hitting that that exactly. we're, We're all falling short in some area. But it's where Jesus wants us to be heading. That's the direction He wants us to head towards. And He says, and if not... If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your, your lampstand from its place. I don't think it's removal of salvation. I think it's removal of a church, of having influence and having an impact on a community. You see, Jesus will not allow a church to stand that is devoid of Him as its first love and the center of its faith and its devotion. Jesus says, if it's not about me, I'm going to remove it. I'm going to remove it. Jesus has more to say. Verse 6, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus applauds rejection of deceptive faith. First question is, who are the Nicolaitans? Right? We really don't know much about them. Some in church history said, well, maybe it's connected to Nicholas of Antioch in Acts chapter 5, verse 6, who was one of the first of the deacons that were appointed. There's really no evidence for that, so I would throw that out the window. But I think if we look to the text, we're going to read about the Nicolaitans a little bit later in Revelation chapter 2, verses uh, 14 through 15, addressing the church of Pergamum. And they're associated with people who are uh, eating food, sacrificed to idols, and sexual immorality. And the word... Nicolaitans, if you break it down, two places. 
Nikos, which is Nike, victory, and Laos, people. So perhaps these people viewed themselves as victory people. Victory people. Kind of twisting that, saying, I have freedom. I have freedom to do whatever I want because Jesus came and paid it all. It's what theologians call antinomialism. It means I, you know, Jesus died, he's my credit card for me to do whatever I want. To sin. Freedom to sin rather than freedom from sin. If you think about that, that practice gets along famously with the pagan culture around them. What? Participate in you know festivals to gods eating their food? Sure, we can do that because I have freedom. What? Participate in sexual immorality? Okay, because I have freedom. Jesus has paid it all. And unfortunately, these people are both deceivers and deceived because they misunderstand what Jesus has come to do to set them free from sin and death. And the classic chapter about this, I'm just going to highlight it real quick, quickly, is Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to obey uh, the one you obey. You are slaves to the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 21, what benefit did you reap from, the, reap from those things that you now are ashamed of? Those things result in death. You're returning to death. That is a deceptive belief. And then the verse that many of us have memorized, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't choose death. Choose life in Christ. Become His follower, become His slave, and receive His righteousness. Here's what I want you to note also. Jesus doesn't say, I hate the Nicolaitans. I said, I hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. That's what I hate, because it's deceptive. It's leading people in the wrong direction. That's why he applauds the Ephesians for rejecting this deceptive faith. Verse 7. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Jesus calls us to listen and to live. It's both an exhortation and an encouragement to the Ephesians and to us today. It's calling us by His Holy Spirit to return to Him as our first love. You know, anything that we put above God, that's idolatry. We made a God out of that. And God is, is moving toward a great restoration process to feed us from the tree of life as we first read in Genesis and how it ends in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. Eternal life out of sin that taints us into paradise, the Garden of Eden, now restored by God Himself. Tearing away the thing that separated us from Him in sin and bringing us into perfect fellowship with Him. Nothing between us and a holy God now. 
because we've been made righteous. To choose Him. That is what He's calling us to do. And there's nothing better. It's a call to return to your first love. The love of your soul. And maybe do some soul searching. Why do I act the way I act? Is it because I love Him? Is He my first love? Do we have ears to hear what He wants to tell us? I'm going to pray and then ask the worship team to come and close us. Lord Jesus, I thank You for this Word. And if we're honest with ourselves, it does cause us to do some soul searching. And my prayer, Lord, is that no one would heap upon themselves false guilt for obedience to You. But I do pray you give us discernment. That if our obedience is rooted in ourselves, rather than love for you, that you would help us to repent. And Lord, if we're in disobedience, would you give us grace to repent from that as well and return to you with a whole heart? Because, Lord Jesus, you are life and in you is life. And you've come to rescue us from death. So come and do that work within us. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your letter to us. And would you cause us to taste and see that you are good. And there's nothing better than knowing you. It's in your name I pray these things.